Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Well, what a few days. And as I pledged earlier in the week, and when I pledge, I keep to my pledges, we needed to get together again for a second time in an attempt to delve deep and make sense of it all. So if it's okay with all of you, this is going to be the kind of structure of what is becoming a cliche now, because everyone say, oh, it's time for an emergency podcast. But uh, this is a cause for an emergency podcast. Um, So a few notices, uh, then a few reflections on me. Remember uh, where we left off in our time together earlier in the week. We had had the dramatic reshuffle, but since then we've had the court judgment on Rwanda and the vote uh, on the ceasefire vis-a-vis Israel Gaza in the House of Commons. So huge amounts to make sense of. Of course, last time, very unusually, uh, it was all so fast moving and quite late on that um, I didn't have time to read out your brilliant question. So we'll get to as many as those as is possible. Uh, But remember, we get together again very early next week to make sense of it all. So more time then. Sorry if I don't read your questions out. They've been flying in and all brilliant, Um, but as many as possible. Uh, Just a couple of notices. Uh, The big one, please subscribe to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. I know many of you do, because if you do, you can join us for one of our live gatherings. Uh, That's this coming Thursday, November the 23rd. And uh, some of you will know the way we kind of structure this is uh, I give a little uh, opening few reflections. By the way, this is the day after Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement, uh, a statement where I suspect all this talk about the cliche of uh, Sunak leaping to the centre ground will be further challenged. But anyway, we'll find out. Um, Yeah, and then we have a wider discussion and people appear on screen and it's great. And it's very much the cooperative within the cooperative. So if you do subscribe, you get loads of other bonuses as well. So that would be great. Uh, What else? Yeah, the rope tackle in Shoreham, uh, the the postponed rock and roll politics is uh, next Monday. Anyone on the South Coast and anywhere, please do come along. And then, of course, the uh, Christmas special live at King's Place on December the 18th, where we look back on this crazy year and dare to look ahead 
on what is going to be a very intense election year, assuming he holds it next year, which I think he will in the autumn. Um, but anyway, uh, glasses of wine will flow. So do come along and you can book for uh, the, these on the blurb to the podcast or at the relevant websites. Um, I think those are the notices. Yeah, they are. So just a few thoughts from me. First of all, as you know, we like to delve deep and contextualise, but let's step back, back, back for the biggest picture of all vis-a-vis the boats, uh, Rwanda and that court judgment. What is totally bonkers about it is that it's as if, in a way, everything else in the UK is fine because the amount of political energy that's going to be sucked up uh, in trying to, uh, one way or another, get round this unequivocal court judgment about the illegality of the Rwanda scheme as currently proposed will be incredible. There will, first of all, be this so-called emergency legislation. Will it meet the demands of right-wing Tory MPs? If not, what will they do? We are back to a Brexit dynamic where this party, the Conservative Party, which has become impossible to lead really for decades now, will test the Tory leadership again. And will it lead to an attempt to bring about a Brexit-style divide of the Tories claiming to speak for the people against the elites, that dangerous divide that uh, Johnson sought successfully to put in place in the autumn of 2019. Do you remember Parliament versus the people? The elected Parliament, elected by the people, apparently in opposition to the people. Uh, Will it be this noble Tory government against the judges, against others? Uh, Of course, Europe is back in it again, Uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, And the, the bizarre thing about that judgment on Wednesday, that dramatic Wednesday, another pivotal day in this wild parliament, it came from a British court. It didn't come from Europe. And yet there was Sunak saying, we won't let Europe block us from sending people to Rwanda. So a huge amount of political energy is going to be sucked up on this single issue. And yet we live in a country where nothing bloody works. Um, There was a good column the other day I read from someone who I know quite well, Jenny Russell in The Times, who listed the kind of things, you know, you post a letter, you're not sure it's going to be delivered when it's meant to be delivered. You go to a train station, you're not sure you're going to be able to get the train, and if you get the train, whether it will arrive on time or disrupt all plans. You get in a car and try and uh, go somewhere, and here I become the driver's friend in alliance with Rishi Sunak. And you've no idea whether you're going to be stuck at 30 miles per hour. And if you go above it, you get a fine. And then you arrive exhausted eight hours later. You can't get a GP's appointment. And if you do and have to see a hospital, uh, you're in a never-ending delay. This is, and, and let's not forget the sewage being pumped into the sea and rivers and so on. This is a country in deep crisis. Uh, and yet the focus will be on the boats and Rwanda. Uh, 
And the court judgment was so unequivocal, a sane government would accept it and move on. But of course, we're not in the realms of reason now. We are back in the realms of a Tory party, the party that rules Britain most of the time, uh, in another of its heightened state of neurosis. And then very dangerous and odd things start to happen. And as I say, the dangerous and odd thing that starts to happen now is this focus on this issue. You watch the media being dominated by it, the vote in the Commons, what Labour is going to do, and all the rest of it in the coming weeks and months as we all try and struggle our way around daily life in the United Kingdom. Uh, historians from the right to the left will look back in bewildered fascination. Now, that's not to say that this is not an issue. I know it is. People tell me Labour MPs, as much as Tory MPs, uh, that the boats comes up all the time on the doorstep. It is on one level bizarre because it comes up in places wholly unaffected by it. But in it, as Michael Heseltine has observed, it was this kind of fear of um, foreigners, in inverted commas, that drove the Brexit vote to some extent. And uh, this clearly propels the boat issue up the concerns of voters. So the issue becomes how you deal with it. Now, this is incredibly uh, complicated. Um, but what is so interesting is how when there is a global crisis involving money, countries can come together in an attempt to deal with it. So in 2008, uh, we had the global financial crash. And under the leadership of the likes of Gordon Brown and the newly elected glittering President Obama, uh, countries came together and coordinated a fiscal stimulus uh, and, and other economic weapons in an attempt together to deal with that crash. Now, clearly what is happening here uh, with asylum seekers is a global crisis of a similar uh, intensity. And yet countries are wholly incapable of coming together. There was a very interesting model here when uh, we had the crisis in Syria. And of course, we had various leaders expressing horror at what was going on in Syria. Do you remember there was the image of that baby on the beach and so on? And Merkel in Germany announced a proposition to coordinate taking people in from uh, Syria across the EU. And she assumed it would be a relatively straightforward uh, set of um, levers to pull to address the immediate crisis. But of course, it became impossible. Uh, the opposite happened. Uh, even countries like Sweden, Austria, and so on, so feared that this would trigger a further rise of the populist right, there was no cooperation. And indeed, she got into trouble herself within Germany. Uh, it partly explains the rise. Uh, this is where the rise began of the right-wing uh, AFD party in Germany. And there was no coordination. 
But that is what is required in the end because you're not dealing with an individual country capable of uh, responding in a way that addresses the issue. And of course, in Britain, Brexit has made it worse. There was a mechanism with France to at least seek to control the degree to which asylum seekers were moving around between the certainly the French and British borders. That went with Brexit, Lord Frosty Frost. You know, they, they actually, the EU negotiators said, we, we should keep this. Frost said, no, 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 we're going it alone. We're going it alone. The fool. Um, by the way, I see Frost tweeting about the Tories' dire opinion poll ratings as if he's a sort of innocent commentator instead of a player in the last 14 years. Anyway, so it, it, it requires really deep engagement with the issue and with other countries um, as part of the solution. Instead, we have uh, the situation with a government that now all have to pretend the solution is Rwanda. I say pretend because we know that uh, well, uh, James Cleverly in his new role, uh, he's been in two days, it is a farce the way we do these things, as Home Secretary, uh, didn't deny. Um, he described this Rwanda policy as batshit at one point. Um, so uh, he, he knows the problems. Sunak, who is very right-wing and, and uh, I think probably genuinely furious with the courts and so on, but he is also forensic and he will know the scale of the challenge, but is too weak to explain that to the right of his party, uh, weak as in too, in too weak a position. Uh, to do so. It, it's too uh, much of a caricature. So these people are inherently weak. They're, he's in a weak position. And so you go along, Cameron tweeted, oh, we must protect our borders. This figure, I knew this would happen. Uh, David Cameron's return uh, would be uh, lazily portrayed by supposedly impartial broadcasters as a move back to the centre ground because he, Cameron, is a centrist. Now, I say you can agree or disagree with him, and he's, he's, an, uh, he's uh, I've met him a few times, liked him, uh, but he's a figure of the right in terms of economic policy. Uh, look at their response to the global financial crash. Uh, David Cameron and George Osborne were the only leaders of a mainstream Western party who in 2008 responded to that crash by calling for real-term spending cuts. And that was not the response even of President Bush in the United States in his dying days as president before Obama came in. Uh, but they, that was their kind of response, and it was in consultation with Nigel Lawson and Jeffrey Howe. They are figures of the 1980s in terms of economic uh, policy to the right of Thatcher, actually, who never imposed real-term spending cuts. But anyway, there's uh, Cameron now saying we've got to protect our borders, fully behind. He must have discussed this with Sunak. They are all going to apply huge amounts of political capital and energy in trying to get a few people to Rwanda before the general election. And if they fail, they will try to blame Labour and the North London elites, lawyers like Keir Starmer. Uh, that clearly is the strategy. And whether they can play the same trick again, who knows? But that is the trick they will seek to play. 
And as I say, it's kind of you despair on so many different levels. Another level that you despair is why the heck did they pursue this when they must have been advised that it is it was not going to pass remotely the kind of legal tests. It wasn't just the ECHR that was being violated. Several other laws were being challenged by this uh, proposition, according to the unequivocal court judgment. And here, of course, the answer again is the politics of the Conservative Party. If you remember, the proposal to send asylum seekers to Rwanda was made by Johnson in a big speech. Uh, I think it was one Friday when he was in deep trouble for lying over the parties and all kinds of other things. And it was briefed that this was part of the so-called Operation Save Big Dog. Uh, again, uh, what a dark farce that becomes tragedy. And so we know what happened. There was an embryonic plan to send people to Rwanda that hadn't been fully thought through, but Johnson was desperate, wanted an announcement to please his parliamentary party who were beginning to stir against him. So he seized on this and uh, gave great hope to the fantasists of the right who have always been loved this idea of... Uh, taking these people, incidentally, many of them desperate, who theoretically British governments kind of support. You know, we're talking about people from Afghanistan, Syria, etc., etc. But when it comes to it, they love the fantasy of kicking them off uh, Britain uh, and going somewhere else. This began uh, with Michael Howard, uh, who was a, he was on the right, but a very, again, reasonable figure, a bit like David Cameron, a figure of the right, but very decent I got to know him quite well, liked him a lot, and went to his house a few times. But he was a figure of the right. And he proposed, when he was leader, to send asylum seekers to an island. And Tony Blair, who was very alert to the electoral potential of being tough on these people, but was able to mock it. He said, where is this island? And, of course, Michael Howard couldn't answer and Johnson found the equivalent of an island in Rwanda, but had not, he wouldn't have read any of the details and wouldn't have listened to any warnings that it wouldn't be feasible. He wanted to make that speech to save his own skin. And hundreds of millions of pounds of people have been terrified uh, in order to bring that about. So on many, many levels, uh, it is deeply depressing and we are living through another psychodrama in a Conservative Party that has become almost impossible to lead, really, since the early 1990s. Major was the first leader who found it almost impossible to lead. And so it has continued. Uh, now, is the Labour Party becoming very difficult to lead suddenly? Keir Starmer, having taken it over with a kind of ruthless focus since uh, he became leader in 2020, uh, uh, faced a big revolt over the call for a ceasefire. On one level, this was the exact opposite of the boats, in that when you go and step a long way back from the highly emotive, highly charged feeling within the Labour Party about the horrors of this situation. Um, there really wasn't actually a big gap in the end between the motion that uh, the leadership put forward 
uh, calling for an extended pause and uh, an immediate ceasefire. It wasn't, you know, the fact that the government voted against the Starmer motion uh shows that uh the the, the the sort of bipartisan approach is beginning to shift and so i suspect this is not now in the short term at least uh an early example of the parliamentary labor party becoming much more difficult to handle however uh and by the way you know you, you, after it will be 14 years next year of conservative rule, there is enough hunger for an election victory, for a kind of uh, unity to reassert itself, I, I sense. But I think there are lessons for uh, Keir Starmer in that revolt. It was a revolt of MPs from across the spectrum and uh, couldn't be caricatured as, you know, the Corbynistas stirring it or whatever. And he lost the likes of uh, Jess Phillips from the front bench. And uh, I think the lesson, uh, clearly a twofold. We, we've been through already. Uh, I kind of sensed at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool that there was a kind of premature a kind of celebratory mood over how much of the media were saying you know in in Kisama's immediate response to the horrors of uh, October the 7th in Israel uh, oh thank god it's not Corbyn there it's Starmer this shows it's a party grown up ready for government and you know the the, the spinners were spinning all of this and I, you know, I could see trouble ahead and said on this podcast, I can see trouble ahead before actually even, I think, uh, Keir had given his disastrous LBC interview where he appeared to say, and I've heard it many times, I think he did say, uh, maybe not, he, he thought he was answering something else, but he did say that Israel had the right to block fuel and food to Gaza as part of their... Uh, response to the hell of October the 7th. Anyway, that was the kind of framing. It was those days where a framing got into the minds of some MPs and Muslim voters uh, of imbalance. Um, and I think with some justification in the early days. Now, that has been addressed since. I think his Chatham House speech was much more balanced and, and there was an explanation Something leaders need to do if they're to become political teachers is to explain why you are arguing for what you are doing, not just say it and assert it, but why. And um, I think he explained his position well then, and it was more balanced. And, and, and the motion, although long and a bit convoluted, um, was also balanced. But... Then Kistama put out a statement after the revolt saying leadership is doing the right thing. And I have to say, my heart sank because it was copying again uh, something that there is a tendency to do. I don't know whether he's writing it or people who used to work for Tony Blair write it. That's precisely the kind of language Tony Blair used in the build-up to Iraq and in the aftermath when it was clear it was all going wrong. 
uh, I'm doing the right thing. Leadership is about doing the right thing. Just examine those words. The essence of politics is a debate about what is the right thing to do, not least in the context of something as complex and hellish as the Middle East. And I think the use of that kind of language reveals a mindset that has underestimated the importance of party management as a skill and deafness and sensitivity to party management. Um, I mean, Blair could go around and say, I'm doing the right thing. I, you know, I'm, there might be people to the right of me, left of me complaining, and stuff, but I do the right thing, with the implication that there's a sort of godlike gift in the leader to recognise what is right. Now, maybe you can do that after winning three elections, although it didn't really help him much in terms of Iraq, Tony Blair, but you can't really do that at this stage, although you, you know, you've got this big opinion poll lead. There is a need to engage. And I know his office has worked really hard and Sue Gray has chaired daily meetings on all of this because it has caused such a tra trauma within the Labour Party. But I think there are two lessons. One is to try and anticipate in advance the difficulties that might erupt on any given topic and, and, and act accordingly from day one. Um, because I say that LBC thing and some of the other stuff in the early days, I think, are the background to this. But also to engage uh, within a party as well. Obviously, the main role of a leader of the opposition is to win elections, uh, and Labour are useless at that. But there is party management issues as well. Now, uh, you know, Keir Summer has lifted the language of Tony Blair again uh, in his response to that Commons revolt. But there are other models. I mean, I will look at this in more detail. I haven't done much of this beyond interviewing Nick Thomas Simmons uh, when he wrote his very good biography on Harold Wilson. But Wilson is a model which you sometimes have to apply. It's not as glamorous as Blair's crusading, I do the right thing, come what may. But sometimes you have to use the Wilsonian skills when a party is so fundamentally split. Although fundamental isn't a wrong word to say that the divide is between a long pause and a ceasefire. You know, these are kind of, they are both significant and small. But anyway, Wilsonian skills are sometimes required, a capacity to engage with different sections of a party that is inevitably still a broad church, however many you purge. Uh, and, and, and purging is not always the answer either in terms of party management and winning elections. So I do think there are lessons, but I don't think it will trigger a kind of period of huge turbulence within that parliamentary Labour Party because an election is looming. But uh, what happens after an election, uh, I think there are lessons about leadership and managing parties in government. Um, on the Tory side, clearly we know a period of turbulence has uh, begun again. So, uh, yeah, what dramas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm going to now return, if it's okay, to your brilliant questions. And the way to join our never-ending debate is to email me on steverick14 at icloud.com. And I wanted to thank you, uh, first of all, for all of you who alerted me on Twitter and via email to the continuing rise of Lee Rowley. Uh, Part of our prophetic skills as a rock and roll politics cooperative is we identify those who are soaring to the top. And the context of this for new listeners is that ages ago, at a live show at King's Place, someone in the audience said to me, what about Lee Rowley as a kind of future leader? I said, I've never heard of him. Well, that week, he was put in the government by, I think, Theresa May or maybe Boris Johnson. I can't remember when it was. And we've been following him. He keeps on rising and rising. And now he is housing minister, about the 500th housing minister in the last six months. So thank you for that. By the way, I tweeted my thanks to all of you. Uh, for pointing out that our man to watch, Lee Rowley, had been made housing minister. And I got a text from uh, Nick Ferrari's producer on LBC saying, can you come on to talk at Ten Past Eight about the rise of Lee Rowley? I wanted, I think, I I hope I replied, it was early in the morning, that um, there is a bit of irony in our worship of Lee Rowley, the new housing minister, the 500th housing minister. It's not as if we've got a housing crisis in Britain, is it? You know, with five, the housing ministers last about six months, if they're lucky. I mean, it's part of the madness. But forget about a focus on housing. It's all going to be about flying people to Rwanda. Anyway, to your question. Oh, yeah, the other thing I was saying, I've had loads of brilliant questions about the COVID inquiry and the lessons from it. As usual, ranging very widely, Dominique Joule, our French correspondent, comparing how France is looking at the lessons learned compared with here. But if it's all right with you, I'm going to save those uh, to when Johnson and co. Uh, are witnesses at the COVID inquiry because we've had so much going on. Uh, in the last few days. But thank you for all your reflections on the lessons to be learned. There are loads. Okay, over to your questions. Uh, Luca McCall, who has contacted us before. I'm a 20-year-old student studying archaeology at Glasgow University. I remember uh, Luca. Uh, Yeah, by the way, we have loads of students listening to this podcast you know i'm fascinated by the bbc they have endless meetings how do we get younger people and they their answer is to be patronizing uh and only run things for three minutes and you know kind of the laura coonsville sunday program no more than six minutes and let's get comedian in that will get younger audience anyway luca uh I know Scottish politics is the last thing on everyone's mind at the moment. However, I think that the conflict in the Middle East has exposed a rift between Anna Sawa and Keir Starmer that may be a key dynamic come next year and beyond. This rift has actually been exposed before during the Rutherglen by-election over the two-child benefit cap. However, both the SNP and Tories couldn't capitalise on it uh, then. 
Uh, I would be interested to know your thoughts on this dynamic and how parties can disagree without appearing divided and troubled. Yeah, that's very interesting because this uh, over the ceasefire issue, uh, Anna Sawa, Andy Burnham and uh, Sadiq Khan all took a different position to Starmer. They called for an immediate uh, ceasefire. And in a way, Sawa was the most interesting because he's... He, I mean, the others have had clashes with Starmer, especially Andy Burnham. They don't get on, the two of them. Um, and uh, Starmer, wrongly in my view, in a panic reaction to the Uxbridge by-election defeat, distanced himself from uh, Sadiq Khan's uh, ULIS policy. Uh, but Anasawa and, and Kistama get on really well. Kistama recognises uh, what a good job Anasawa is doing in Scotland, and Anastawa recognises a key to Labour doing well in Scotland is Kistama, because if it looks as if Labour could form a UK government, that changes the dynamic in Scotland. And yet he challenged him on this most fundamental of issues. Uh, but, again, a bit like the whole PLP internal tension, I think we've just got to learn to accept with devolution uh, that there will be differences. And, and in a way, they can be healthy because they can challenge uh, Labour leaderships at Westminster tend to have so much influence from, you know, the right-wing media, focus groups and so on. These other voices, I think, are important and legitimate. And I think there is space for these figures to take different points of view without bringing the whole house down. But we'll see, Luca, in the coming months. You're right, the dynamic is is interesting. Um, okay, over to Stuart Pearson. You have a fan in Seattle and in the liberal Pacific Northwest. You should have many. Oh, thank you. Well, Stuart, tell everyone in the liberal Pacific Northwest to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, that would be great. Um, I became a member of the cooperative recently and I enjoyed your discussion about power, where power lies. Um, I found Sunak's genuflection to Musk and the projection of X on number 10 deeply embarrassing. The truths about Musk's and the reality about AI are coming out now. Anyway, uh, Stuart, who is originally from Scotland, even now in uh, trendy Seattle, uh, my, Gordon Brown has prepared a plan for Labour to devolve power. So this links to Luca's question. Why is this not the rallying call for Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves? Devolved representation will better allocate resources to regional and local needs. People have asked me what it was like to live in Trump's America, and the answer is that the Northwest, California, and many states... Uh, were never there. We weren't living in Trump's US because of the power of the uh, individual states. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, so the answer is partly that at the beginning of this year, uh, Keir Starmer did make a big play about this, saying the big idea for him was a historic transfer of power away from Westminster. He even used the phrase, take back control. But it hasn't been followed through fully. And indeed, the year has been marked by tensions, as we've just been discussing, with some of the devolved leaders. And so there is always an ambiguity in opposition about this, and certainly in government, where you want to proclaim your willingness to give away power, to trust the people, to trust local communities, but then also make pledges centrally 
in the culture of British politics, which is a pretty unhealthy culture, uh, you know, that uh, every penny will be spent wisely. And if you pledge that, you can't devolve much power because you're in the Treasury going to keep a, a, a watch on every halfpenny. It's part of the mad tax and spend debate and where power lies and how can people be trusted and so on. So Stuart, uh, they're half there with the Brown proposition, some of which I think will be implemented, but not wholly. Uh, and thank you very much. And do spread the word throughout the whole of the United States. Thank you very much. I told, tell you, we kind of range widely. We're now over to Alex Bell, who lives in uh, Switzerland, uh, leading a kind of life which I think will be fantastically high quality. Uh, Alex has a theory that the Red Wall doesn't really exist. Uh, and, and this is quite interesting. He says, uh, the last election was boiled down to a single issue, get Brexit done. Half the country had voted for Brexit. No single party of the big two had come out against it uh, in the referendum. So for those reasons, if you were a Brexiteer, you were going to vote Tory if you weren't a dyed-in-the-wool Labour supporter. Unsurprisingly, the Tories won a landslide. On to the future election, Brexit has happened as far as it's going to, so there's nothing to vote for there. Corbyn and Johnson have both gone, and everyone is heartily bored of the Tories, so Labour will win probably easily. It's not like the Red Ward is going to come crashing down. It doesn't exist. It was a moment in time. Um, Starmer may be only marginally more popular than Sunak. It doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, I, I've always had my doubts about this caricature of the Red Wall, but it is it is interesting. I was speaking to someone who used to be an MP in one of the constituencies of the Red Wall, and uh, he was there. He joined the Labour Party. He was a minor, and he joined the Labour Party in 1973 or 4, you know, when the minor strikes were going on and... Uh, so on. And he told me that the Yorkshire NUM then, uh, for their gala, their annual gala, uh, wanted as one of the speakers Enoch Powell, uh, because they were uh, anti the common market. And Powell was supporting the miners then uh, over free market principles, that they had become more valuable uh, because of their um, uh, worth compared with oil prices that had quadrupled. And so, you know, the, the the kind of issues that were around in the Brexit referendum were around in the early 70s, and they then, some revered Enoch Powell. So so the, I agree with you. It's It's been exaggerated, this rebel. They're human beings with their own issues, and if you engage, you can soon find that, although maybe on the surface they'll say in a focus group, the boats is the number one issue. When you actually ask them, are you worried about seeing a GP? They say, oh, yeah. And what about a hospital? Oh, yeah. And is it easy to get to places? No, the buses never run and, you know, there only two a day. And suddenly you're in a world which we've all talked about in the cooperative. So, uh, and I think you're right, Alex. I mean, 2019 was a freakish election on lots of different grounds. Now, look, we've been going on for a long time. Uh, I'm just going to read one more because it's it's relevant to um, what I was uh, saying last week from Rick Muir, who's director of the Police Foundation. He was uh, responding to, you see, I kind of dared for a second to take 
part of Suella Braverman's argument seriously about who is accountable for what in terms of policing. And if that march had gone wrong, I've got absolutely no doubt that as the elected Home Secretary, she would have been partly held accountable. Uh, so although she was uh, doing it for shallow reasons, there was an argument there. But Rick Muir uh, says this, Police accountability takes two forms. Politicians set the budget, the legal framework, and the broad priorities for policing. But then the police make operational decisions without political interference. Politicians can retrospectively hold the police to account for their operational decisions afterwards. So if a protest is badly policed, they can question that and make changes in guidance or law if necessary. What Braverman was seeking to do was to tell the commission of the Met to ban a protest, which is his decision in law, not hers. More than that, she was asking him to act unlawfully because it was clear the high threshold for a protest to be banned was not met. Still loving the podcast. Oh, thank you, uh, Rick. Yeah, no, I uh, absolutely take your points. And uh, in the current context, she was going not just too far, but way beyond too far in what she was trying to do. But I do think these issues of accountability are very complicated because perhaps wrongly, but maybe it'll be the media culture. Say, if, you know, she hadn't done any of the things she did, but she was, she, she was just posturing um, or largely posturing. Uh, and it had all gone wrong uh, last Saturday or more wrong than some of it did with the, you know, that, the thugs and so on. Um, you know, I wonder who would the Today programme would get at 10 past eight, maybe the commissioner, but quite possibly they would bid for Braverman as Home Secretary, you know. So, it, it, but I completely take your point that within the current framework, um, she was going way beyond her remit. Oh, God, we got so many uh, things to go. You know, uh, Hugh Carr asking about John Major as a tail-end Charlie who kind of transcended the problems of being a leader after a long-serving prime minister. Alison Keyes wondering about how furious Johnson and Nadine Doris must be with uh, Cameron effortlessly becoming a, a lord. Yeah, just imagine Nadine Doris who ached to get that peerage and then Cameron just strolls in. Uh, Caroline Morgan wondering, though, whether Nadine does have a point about there being a sort of cabal at uh, Westminster. Um, does Dominic Cummings still have any influence at all? And are the powerful people behind him? Uh, I don't think at the moment, I think he's screaming from the sidelines uh, these days. Uh, Anthony Howes, another student, uh, University of Liverpool, holding a conference about David Owen, who's coming up. I'd love to reflect more, Anthony, on David Owen another time. John Lamont, great question about the King's speech and its emptiness and, 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 and why. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Mark Holling wondering uh, whether... Uh, the Cameron move is to woo the blue wall. I think it is partly Mark. I don't know whether it will succeed. Mark, by the way, offers. Uh, I, um, I met Mark, well, I met him several times uh, in North Berwick during the Edinburgh Festival. He's a passionate cyclist. Perhaps I should be the cycle route rep on the cooperative. Always happy to suggest good bike rides and routes for a more sustainable transport future. There's an offer. Uh, because, uh, yeah, he recommended some great bike rides when we were at the Edinburgh uh, Festival. 
And so nice to hear from you, Mark. You're on. That is your role in the cooperative. Now, I could go on the many, many more questions. Keep them coming. Uh, we'll be getting together again early next week. Thanks so much for tuning in for a second time. But I think you'll agree we've got so much to make sense of and more to make sense of in the days to come. We've got that autumn statement as well. We'll have to do two next week. But at least there'll be time for us to have a wider engagement with the questions as well. Thanks so much. Take a deep breath. There's a lot going on. Uh, and let's gather together very soon to make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye. Bye.